Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings here in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and that includes the one in Amarillo, which is owned by the Hawkins family. They live right here in town. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. In fact, Lazy Boy has a ton of items in stock right now, so go take a look in their showroom on Sonsi. That's Amarillo's locally-owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings at 3636 Sonsi. And as part of our partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout-out to Gott Wittenberg Emerson Commercial Real Estate online at gwamarillo.com. And you can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm right now at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Joe Bill Sherrod. If you've been around higher education for any length of time, you've probably encountered Joe Bill. He spent a decade as a major gifts and development officer at West Texas A&M University. Now he's the vice president of institutional advancement at Amarillo College and the executive director of the AC Foundation. Now those are all really long titles, but they basically mean he is a fundraising professional. He's also a big advocate of public service, having served on boards from Amarillo Little Theater to the Harrington Cancer Center. And so Joe Bill and I talk about the generosity of local people in this episode, and that's a topic that comes up all the time on this podcast. I knew that he would have a unique perspective on this because that's what he deals with day to day. So here's Joe Bill Sherrod. Joe Bill Sherrod, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks well, for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be asked. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, we've known each other for several years, but I'm going to start with you the same way I start with most of my guests and just ask you why you're here. So how did you end up in the Amarillo area? Well, okay. Good question. I actually grew up in uh, the little town of McLean, okay. which is about 75 miles east of here. So um native Texan. It's about as far as you can go native, down I-40 almost. and still be in well, Texas. Well, you got another 30 miles yeah, or so. But uh, yeah, I grew up there and I came to WT for a couple of years and then I transferred to uh, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa. Okay. And so that was in 1976 and I stayed in Tulsa except for a, a two-year departure from there to Odessa, uh, right. then back to Tulsa. And uh, and then I came out here in 1989, primarily because as my parents grew a little bit older, mm -hmm. I wanted to be a little bit closer. Um, I say that, and it's funny because I'm older now than my parents were then. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's a good, that's some good yeah, perspective. Yeah, I guess. perspective. And uh, but the other was that uh, I'd had an opportunity with an insurance company to move over to Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, and I was divorced at the time and my son was in Tulsa and in a conversation with my, my former wife, his mother, uh, she indicated that she was going to be back in the panhandle, mm -hmm. uh, probably within the year to practice law. So I thought, well, I don't want to go to Fort Smith, so I'll just return to the panhandle. This kind of always, this is working out, came with the same insurance company. And so that's how I got here in okay. 1989. And she didn't move, and so my my son didn't live here, but um, or didn't grow up here. So anyway, um, it all worked out. You, you you've been here since then. Yeah, right? yeah. I came in 1989. What did you study at WT and then at Oral Roberts? Well, this is a funny story because you know sometimes first generation students aren't quite as informed, especially the smaller the school, the mm -hmm. less informed you might be. So. I was really into speech and one-act plays and okay. that sort of thing in high school. But I didn't want to be a speech major, and I didn't want to be a speech teacher. So I thought somehow there was a connection between all of that and, and speech therapy or speech pathology. Okay. And so I declared that as my major. And so I had, uh, I think the first, maybe the first couple, first semester, maybe both First year, I didn't have any classes in that, but my second year, mm -hmm. I did, and I had I had gotten to know a uh, one of the professors, and so 
I had a couple of things that happened to me along the course of a couple of uh, another year of study in that program. And and so one day I said to him, Jerry, do you think there is a connection between my maybe not having chosen the wrong major and the fact that in the last two or three weeks I've had two incidences where somebody had a bad stuttering issue and I never noticed it. And after the conversation and after we moved on, the person with me said, and and it was two different people, by the way, the person with me said, wow, what a shame that they stutter so much. And um, and my response was, they, didn't, they weren't stuttering. Mm-hmm. Well, he said, if you didn't recognize that, this is, something's not clicking here. Maybe speech here. pathology so, is not so your... So I, I decided I probably should change my major. Okay. Yeah. So what did you change it to? Well, and so at that time, it was at the end of my sophomore year at uh, WT when I transferred to ORU. And I'm terrible in math. And so I wanted to try to avoid every chance. I, I just didn't want to have to take any math classes because I wanted a good GPA, but I didn't want math to screw that exactly. up. Exactly. Okay. Totally so, understand that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, it seemed like sociology would be a good area of study. Well, what I can tell you today is that, that there's really not a career at, for a sociologist, I don't think. I never did discover that. And two of the hardest classes I ever took were Statistics 1 and Statistics 2, which were something you had to do. I mean, yeah, a whole lot of math. In fact, I got Ds in both of them. So (laughs) (laughs) so much for the GPA. But anyway, um, so I was a sociology major. And frankly, I loved it. And really and truly, I think it served me well because – I already probably had a natural inclination to um, to sort of study people and study what they do and how they're doing it and why they do it and questioning motives and that sort of thing. But that's kind of gave me some principles uh, to understand some of that. And so I, I would have to tell you that in every form and shape of my life and the careers that I've had, uh, I know it's been, it was a valuable tool. Okay. Some of those classes were really incredible classes. So speaking of those different careers, uh, you mentioned that you were in insurance when you first came back to Amarillo. Mm-hmm. I know that's not what you do now. Mm-hmm. Kind of walk me through sort of what your career the path career was. Path. I, mean, I don't need a resume uh, or a timeline, but yeah. like, let me know some of the things okay. that you did. Well, so basically I've done three things. And in some ways they're all very connected Starting in high school, uh, my my faith journey became very important. And in the process of that, um, we had a summer youth minister in our little town who he was actually at the Baptist church and I was a Methodist, mm-hmm. but everybody just kind of did everybody's program, you know, when we could. And this kid just made this incredible impression on me. And I thought, man, the coolest thing in the world would get to, would be to get to do that when you're in college. To go to some other town and be the 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 guy for the summer, mm-hmm. so that worked out uh, that I got that opportunity after high school, and then that kind of became my career path. Um, I had planned at that time to to after graduation from ORU to go to seminary. ORU had a seminary at that time, and I was enrolled in that. It was actually a United Methodist ordained uh, cemetery <laughs> seminary. And I think I might have found it more of a cemetery. Yeah, I was going to say, I won't, and, I won't yeah. say that's a Freudian yeah. slip, but we'll just no, let that I think go. It, after a year of that, I felt like I'd been in a cemetery. Okay. So anyway, I, I didn't go in that direction, as it turned out. And But part of that is that I'd gotten pretty heavily involved in youth ministry, and I loved it. And it was so exciting and and. I thought I saw so many good things happening that seminary seems so boring and so unnecessary right. and so connected. And it's, this sounds very judgy because it is very judgy, but I kept thinking to myself, if these are the people who are going to lead the church someday, that kind of that makes me wonder. You know, I'm not sure I want what they have. Right. But anyway, um, they've many of those people have gone on and been very successful, which tells you how much how much error there was in my judgment okay. at that age. Um, so I did the youth ministry thing, and that became a full-time thing in, um, well, really in 1978 while I was in seminary. 
And that was why I ended up in Odessa. I had actually taken a job in Claremore, Oklahoma, which is right right outside of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And at the at the first United Methodist Church there, incredible experience, lots of fun. Well, uh, I think a couple of years into that, I had the opportunity uh, to go do the same thing at the First United Methodist Church in Odessa. And um, I was married at that time. My wife had been in law school. Uh, we had a we had a kiddo, and I, she wanted to take a break from law school to to be at home. And the move was oper- It was it was an opportunity to kind of move up in salary. Uh, we were starving basically, mm-hmm. um, but we were having a lot of fun. So we went to Odessa, and as her time frame on getting back into law school was drawing to an end. A door opened and I was hired to be the director of youth ministries at First United First United Methodist Church in Tulsa, which was kind of my dream job. Okay. It was a church that we'd gone to during college. Uh and it just it had a really great program. So so I went there and it was it was a great experience. I think it was I look back on that, and I realize that the first two experiences for me were probably richer experiences, and we we might get to that a little bit later in this conversation. But um, but anyway, so there was that. Then um, you know you turn thirty and you start to think you're really old when you're thirty. And so my ministry style was to be on high school and, and middle school campuses. And one day I was on a middle school campus having lunch with some seventh graders. And I just thought, God, my son is like four now. And it, what, another five or six years? He's going to be at a campus like this. And if I show up, he is going to crawl under the table. Yeah, It's going to be embarrassing for him. And so that started this thing of maybe I need to get out of this. I mean, I don't want to be... This guy in cutoffs and flip flops um, at forty years old because that that would just look ridiculous. Right. That would and so you know the I remember turning forty all those years later and thinking, oh my god, I'm still cool. So uh, <laughs> I could have pulled that <laughs> Clearly, off. Clearly, I was worried about yeah, nothing yeah, back then. Yeah, but anyway, so I made this change. There, I had a connection through uh, through church. Uh, with a guy who was a general agent for the Mass Mutual in Tulsa. And uh, he had kids in the youth group, and he and his wife taught in our Sunday school program. And one day he was asking me about one of my college, uh, one of our one of our college staff. And this great kid who went to OSU but came over to Tulsa on the weekends and did youth ministry with us, um, Jeff Bertram. And he said, uh, "What? tell me what you think about him. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, he's interviewed at Mass Mutual, and I just want to know if you think he can do this career. Hmm. And I said, well, describe the career. And he said, well, what I'm going to have him do, I want him, I need a guy to recruit agents. And he'd spent a lot of time on college campuses, and you know, he helped, he would help people make career transitions, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, he would be great. But if for some reason he said he wasn't interested, would you consider me? Hmm. And he said, absolutely. So Jeff said no. Okay. And that's how I got into the insurance business. I, I thought it was like I was really intimidated about being in something outside the church because I didn't think I understood anything about business. Right. It never occurred to me that putting a budget together for five staff people and then the programming for seven or 800 kids, which is what we had in that church in Tulsa, was like a business. Yeah. No one ever told me that, or I just never got the connection. Plus, your skill set is all people-oriented. Yeah. And so I took that job with Mass Mutual and started recruiting agents, which was kind of a dumb thing because I had no idea what an agent did. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it was fun. And then... In the mix of all that was a divorce, and then I started, you know, I had this opportunity to go to Fort Smith, and and so as it turned out, I came here. Okay. And so I was in the insurance business here from 1989 until uh, 
October of 2009. Okay. And uh, continuing to recruit, or did you? No, actually, I, 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 I turned. I I, uh, I gave up the recruiting and started just doing personal production. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I spent the next 20 years doing that, which was great. Uh, loved it. And then I just had this. I always call it my midlife crisis with no red Corvette. All right. Um, it was just a need to make a career change and do something that brought more meaning and enriched my experience in life. And I didn't really know what that was going to be. And so I, you know, I thought about youth ministry and I mean, I didn't think about that seriously as a, as a, something I wanted to do, but, but I thought, you know, being around kids could be really fun so I finally came to the conclusion that maybe the best way to test the water would be to go sign up to be a substitute teacher and experience the classroom and see what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And I did that for, well, I actually had almost a full semester. But the first, I'm going to say first the two weeks of that, I never went into a classroom because I had this ideal of the classroom I wanted to go into, right. which was uh, at either Amarillo High or Tascosa. I did, I did not love junior high kids when I was a youth minister. I'm like, don't send me there. Um, but the only calls you ever get in that subfinder, or mostly you ever get an opportunity, would be to go to PD Caprock or or the feeder middle schools. Mm-hmm. So finally, one day, I just thought, well, I, I guess I just better say yes. I'm just going to try it. And I remember going, the, my first gig was at Bowie Middle School. Okay. And uh, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. These junior high kids are much more like high school kids of the 70s than they are the like the junior high kids of the 70s. Kids have just, they've evolved in that way. So I had this... You know, I continued doing that, and I would just go wherever. But but one day, I went to Horace Mann, and there was something about the school. I think part of it was the architecture. I kind of was digging on that. Yeah, it's a really old building. Yeah, it is. And But the kids were, in some ways, totally out of control, but really bright. Okay. And I was really challenged by that. And I thought... I just I love this place, and I and I kept getting to go back there. And then one day, the secretary this was probably this was after spring break. The secretary in the principal's office called me in, and she said, "You really like it here. I can tell. Do you have any interest? Are you in the position to be able to be the permanent sub?" So, and I said, "Well, what's that?" Well, the district has these people that. They're just, they're the first person we call. You don't have to go through the subfinder thing right. at six o'clock in the You're morning. You're just attached You're to just attached. Horace Man. And-, and I said, she said, I can nearly fill your schedule uh, between now and the time school's out. And I was like, really? So I said, yes. Well, that led to going to WT to, to look at the PACE program, mm-hmm. which, which led to a bump in one day with a lady who she kind of knew me, I kind of knew her. She knew me well enough to know that that insurance agents maybe could raise money hmm. because, uh, well, in fact, she said sort of an insulting thing to me as it turned out. Her question was, well, why are you here? And I told her and she said, hmm, you think you really want to teach? And I said, well, I think I do. And she said, well, there's a position open in development and I think you should consider that. And I said, well, I don't know. I, th- I really think I'm. I want to do the teaching thing. And she said, listen, development is just exactly what you've been doing in the insurance business, except you're doing it for a good cause. You already take money out of people's pockets. And she said, I know you've been on boards and I know the boards you've been on. You always raised money for those boards. And she said, there's no different. So I had, I was at a point in my life where I was really working on being more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Just don't say no to anything before you investigate it. So I inquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, I applied. And I was shocked that I got a phone call because I was 53 years old okay. at the time, and it doesn't that doesn't seem very marketable, uh, especially for a position like that. So I got a phone call, and I went to the interview, and I had 
obviously no idea other than it's a development job. But when I got in the, when I got in the interview, what I learned, it was that it was for the college of fine arts and humanities. Hmm. Well, that's kind of my world. So, um, I just kind of unleashed and it was a really good interview and I've been teased and ribbed about it since from those who were a part of the interview because I, maybe I got a little dramatic. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I find that hard to believe. That old one-act play. Yeah, you know. And and so, um, long story short, got the art, uh, got the job, um, and was had no idea this was going to happen because I was kind of. This is part of what I was going through in my mind. It was like, okay, I'm gonna if I don't teach, I'm sacrificing that experience. Mm -hmm. This experience, uh, if I if I teach. I'm sacrificing having my foot in the outside world that I'm used to. This at least puts me on a college campus and maybe I'll get some energy from, from, you know, students. I don't know. I mean, I did, I don't really know what I was thinking except that I was weighing these two things. Well, you know, you, we all have a tendency to go with what's familiar. So I thought this at least keeps me in my, the, the world I'm used to. Okay. And maybe I'll just, I don't know, pick up on the energy. So day one, I learned that my office is in the theater faculty hallway of the College of uh, Fine Arts and Humanities, the Sybil B. Harrington Fine Arts Complex. And I'm like, wow, this is cool. And uh, so that was the beginning of this great relationship with students. Um, they, they, there was a student office next to my office. They were all coming in to see professors. They're all outgoing and funny and bizarre mm -hmm. and easy to talk to. And then that just sort of led to connections all over campus in different different uh, colleges, but an incredible experience. Uh, and then that, you know, that I was there for 10 years. I left there as the assistant vice president of institutional advancement. And with, but I, the one consistency that had, that had been the thread all the way through my 10 years at WT, 10 plus years actually, was being in the College of Fine Arts and Humanities okay. and raising money for that. Uh, I had other projects later. I had administrative duties later, but but I always got to raise money for that college, which was a delight, just a delight. So then I had the opportunity to go to Amarillo College, and uh, it was kind of a step up. Uh, I expected it to be a very similar experience. And it's been an incredible experience, but it is not the same experience. Mm -hmm. It's been very different. Institutions who do each do really great things, but they're very different okay. things, addressing different needs. Both are needed. You know, I'm thinking of listeners who hear titles like director of development and vice president of institutional advancement, and those are those are lofty sounding titles um, for what is basically fundraising. You know, and and correlated duties, but fundraising for a university. Yep. And a lot of people think about fundraising, and they think about well, you know, this small nonprofit, a little ministry. They're you mm -hmm. know trying to get operational costs. Tell me what <clears throat> fundraising is like at the college level, at the university level, and the kinds of things that you are thinking about as someone working in the development world there. That's a great question. I've got to think about that a minute. But just offhand, the thing that pops into my head is what I believe to be at the heart of all fundraising and really, really at the heart of all sales is the idea of relationship. And the stronger the relationship, the more continuity in the relationship, uh, the more likely someone is going to buy or that someone is going to donate. Okay. So, um, and it's interesting because w before I was in a profession that involved fundraising, I did that in several volunteer cases for right. the Amarillo Museum of Art, the Amarillo Theater, particularly those two. And the thing that was true there that I didn't really realize was, well, these people have said yes to me because... I have a relationship with them and they happen to love the institution. And in some cases they didn't know anything about the institution, but the relationship was, you know, they just trusted me when I said okay. that you'll have fun at this if you, if you support it. So, um, that, that relationship building is probably the thing that is, is paramount to the success in the fundraising process. I think another thing that's really key 
is just kind of understanding two things. In 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 fundraising, I, I'm gonna make this very simple, uh, because it is very simple. People must have two things in order to fall into the category of being a donor. They they have to have capacity. So they they have to have some sort of financial um, situation that they have the capacity to, to give. If somebody has a capacity to give $100 a year, they have that amount of capacity. And that for some organization might be that that's a much needed and considered very generous gift. Mm-hmm. If that same person who has the capacity doesn't have an inclination to give to that charity or to that church or project, then it doesn't make any difference whether they have the capacity for $100 or $10,000. If they're not inclined to do it because of whatever reason, maybe maybe it's as simple as they don't have a relationship with that place. So those two ingredients, I think when today when I go see somebody to talk about a gift, what I want to know before I go there, if I can, is do, first of all, do they have the capacity to a, do, to do a gift this size? And number two, are they inclined to do it? Is there a reason they would do it? Does it support their business? Do they have kids who are in this field? You know, I don't, you know it's just there's any number of reasons why somebody might be inclined to give a gift, but you got to figure that out. I'm I'm interested to hear about that because I, you know, I, I know a lot of people have been involved with fundraising, mm-hmm. um, and let's say. You know, it's it's a board, and they're fundraising for Amarillo Museum of Art or the Little Theater, and and maybe they are hoping for a five hundred dollar gift or a thousand dollar gift, maybe a ten thousand dollar gift. That, yeah. That's getting toward the upper level. Yeah. And then when you're working for a college, sometimes you're dealing with large family foundations and very high net worth individuals, mm-hmm. and you start talking in seven figures. Maybe mm-hmm. they want naming rights for mm-hmm. a new building yep. or yep. or something like that. And so, you know, it's a million-dollar gift, a $5 million gift. And so you are dealing, I think, with probably all levels, but including some very high net worth yep. individuals in True. this area. And and I'd like to hear just about the generosity, I think, that you've encountered um, from Panhandle people. Okay. And, you know, what that tells you about this area and and what some of those very major donors are doing. Like why why are they doing that? Why are okay. they making those decisions? Okay, cool. It's it's rumored that people are very generous around the Texas Panhandle. And uh and that rumor is true. Okay. I was going to say yeah. if anybody can confirm yeah. that rumor, yeah. I think maybe it's, you can. Uh, it is so true. The the people of the Panhandle are very generous. Um one of the things that I have found um well, let me back, let me back up and and go to a story of when I was in the insurance business. When I was in the insurance business, I had a I had a a particular very high net worth client who came to Amarillo from another city of similar size, and part of his lineage was uh, a family member who had been generous at the same kind of level as Sybil Harrington. She kind of okay. was to their community what. Sybil was to ours. And one of the comments he made to me one day when we were having lunch to talk about insurance and probably for me to hound him for a little bit of money for the theater, because he was really generous about that. He said, Amarillo is just not as generous as some other places. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't see people giving the size of gifts. And one of the, I remember making a comment, but and I said, I can't really tell you about another city because I've never really studied that. But but you see a lot of people making small gifts. Well, I kind of always held that in my head as to, I wonder why he said that. And one of the things that that I have I began to notice at WT is that um, a giving culture is governed by the highest level. Hmm. So uh, we're all in some, some way naturally competitive. And if, especially if we're in business and we are competing for other people's businesses. I remember when the, and this was long before I was at WT, when the Globe News Center became a project, mm-hmm. the building of the Globe News Center. And that was a $35 million uh, fundraising goal. And I remember thinking, well, I remember hearing, that's the largest fundraising uh, effort that's ever taken place in the Texas Panhandle. When I got to WT, uh, I I got there the week 
that they announced the results of a feasibility study for the first ever comprehensive campaign at WT. Well, the campaign consultant had said, based on my research, you guys could raise about $18 million. And I remember thinking, oh my Lord, that is pathetic. Hmm. And our president at the time, Pat O'Brien, it's just he just shook his head and said, I'm not announcing an $18 million campaign. Yeah. You know, tech at that time, I think it just announced a billion dollar campaign. Right. <laughs> and so um, he said, we're going to do a $35 million campaign. And I remember thinking, Man, the Globe News Center had all the right players, and they struggled to get to $35 million. We don't really have all the right players. How in the world will we ever get to $35 million? Well, we got to $51 million okay. in that five-year period. So my point in telling you that is that as people began, as we began to have relationships and help them have a relationship with WT, then people started stepping up. And as people started stepping up, some of their gifts got a little bit bigger. And I remember we got a a $2 million gift, and it was, I think it ended up being the largest gift in the campaign. But now you look at what WT's doing, and you're seeing $5 million right. gifts coming With in. the One West campaign. Yes. Which- so so I, that is that is affecting the whole community. So you see, you saw the Kids, Inc. thing come in. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, we can't announce this yet because we're in the, a silent phase of a comprehensive campaign at Emerald College, uh, and we have a schedule by which we'll start revealing some of our gifts, but we've got some record-setting gifts that we already know we have. They're not only, they're not only record-setting for AC, they're, they're record-setting for our community. Okay. And, and I say that because with every generation of donors— People are giving more, mm-hmm. and I, I understand that there's a difference in the value of the dollar, but but people are rising to a higher occasion because the standard just keeps getting right. higher and higher. And and I think in some ways this plays in our favor in this conservative environment that we live in. Less reliance on government means we have to rely on individuals. Okay, I'll use this example as a as something that really I think drives fundraising. In my first years at at WT, which 2009 is when I started, I think in 2007, I think these were 2007 numbers, about 70% of WT's budget came from the state of Texas. When I left there, and really this happened not too far into my being there, I'm going to say 2011 or 2012, and then it just kept going down. When I left there, 29% came wow. from the state of Texas. So in a 10-year period, so we, and those are not decisions the college no, has any control legi- over. That's, that's legislative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's happening at AC too. I mean, we got cut a million bucks out of our budget this year. You'll remember, was it 2015? I think Russell had just become president mm-hmm. and the legislature cut out four million dollars. Yeah. Okay. That's that's traumatic if you're running the university. You have to start slashing, you know, yeah, which is what happens. Jobs or yes, yeah. but if you're the if you're the conservative uh, member of the community and you're you're sort of committed to we need to be less reliant on the government, then that's what you're seeing happen. But here's the good news in this in our environment: if we've got that conservative mindset, what we have to go with it to offset it is people who are generous enough to step up to the plate that says it is better for me to give you dollars than for the state hmm. or for the federal government. And I and I that's that is good for fundraising. And and what is what I think is really good about that is that that donor and that donor's family then begins to feel the ownership right. of the institution right. that they're, that they're supporting. And that makes that relationship yes. much much deeper. Oh, yes. And then because of the synergy that's created there, that person may bring you a lot of ideas about what if I, if if he's running or she's running a business, then they're able to say to you, "This is what we need our accounting students to to look like. Right. They, they need this, this, and this. They don't need this, this, and this." And so, if you can't get them prepared here, you're not doing us any favors in the industry. But if they've never given you a penny, they may never say that to right. you. I'm, I'm and interested. If, they, if they've never given you a penny, we might not listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes both ways. Yeah, it does. I, I'm interested in the fact that you've worked in relatively 
similar capacities with both WT and AC. Mm -hmm. And you said your job at AC is uh-huh. a little bit different, but um, I'd like to know kind of how you understand maybe the culture or the mindset of Amarillo College as compared to what you know you saw at WT. What is special or unique about AC? 60% of our students are first-generation students. All right. Um, WT has a lot of first-generation students, but, but it's not that high. Uh, WT is also, as AC is, a Hispanic-serving institution, mm-hmm. uh, which is a designation by the federal government. We are also that. We're at 48%. Yeah, it's a designation based on demographics, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're 48% Hispanic. I think we're very reflective of our total panhandle demographic. Okay. Maybe a little more so than WT. Uh, and so here's the opportunity in that. The opportunity is, especially when you're talking about first generation, uh, if we have a chance to elevate this group of students to the next earning levels because they've decided to go to college, even if it's for certification programs. Right. Uh, and in some cases, the certification programs are where the money is at. Yeah. Uh, so if we've done that, then we're making a huge contribution to what the future of the Texas Panhandle looks like. I, I think the days are gone where emphasis is being placed on a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those days are gone. Now, they may come back, but, uh, but emphasis today is placed on earning livable wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russell uses this term. I love it. Um, employers are telling us that we need people with skills, not people with degrees. And I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't mean they need carpenters or they need plumbers, although they do, right. but it means they need to know how to do what it is they're doing if they come out of a, of a certification program or a four-year institution. If you, if you don't know how to do accounting and, you've, and you have an accounting major, there's a problem. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and if you, can't, if you can't swing a hammer and you've been a part of a certification program, there's a problem. So what, what industry is telling us is send us the skill. We're less, we're less concerned about the degree. Okay. So I think that's special. I think that, w, that uh, AC is leading the way in that kind of thinking. Uh, Russell is a real visionary, and in his vision is to transform our workforce. One of the things we know that we're kind of charged with uh, maybe self-charged, is transforming our workforce uh, so that it is reaching all spectrums, filling needs, but above all, we're creating a little bit more technically savvy uh, workforce. We know from AEDC statistics that we're losing opportunities to re- recruit companies yeah. here because we don't have enough employees who have the technical skills right. to do what's needed in the country. They're not just looking for labor, but they're looking That's for right. skilled labor. Yeah. So we're doing some things that are helping uh, really address that. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time. But, but I think over the next five years, you're going to see us make a significant impact on what our workforce looks like. And that's good for the panhandle. I know another part of your job is related to the AC Foundation. And I wonder if you could just explain that relationship, how the foundation relates to the college um, and, and what role it plays? Well, the foundation is a, a support organization for the college. Okay. So uh, all the scholarships that are awarded, and there are over just about 800, we're giving away about $2 million a year in scholarships. Um, all of that goes to Amarillo College students. Right. So that's, that's the big intersection where the, where the college and the uh, and the foundation come together all through the Thrive program, or do some no, no, exist no. outside that's, of the that that doesn't count the Thrive okay. program. Okay, yeah. count. That's for over it. and above what Thrive Got does. It. Yeah. So um, so there's that. There there's also we we have funds, and one of the one of the big funds now has become this no excuses fund. The you know the whole deal of being able to help students with some of their other financial needs as they go through college, and. Uh, that is all administered through the foundation. All right. the, it's our college students, and in some cases, staff people who access that money, but it comes from the foundation. All right. Yeah. The, the last question I wanted to ask, just to kind of wrap this up, is you know, you, 
you came back to Amarillo or back to the Texas Panhandle. Uh-huh. Uh, you're not doing the same job you were doing back then. You know, you've had a lot of career changes, but you're still here. And I wonder, you know, why you've stayed for so long. What is it about this area that kind of drew you in like a magnet and that, that has kept you here? Because I imagine you've had opportunities. You can do what you do yeah. at any college, any university, and you've got a track record. Well, so, Well, I love it here. I'll tell you this story. When I first came here, and this has happened a number of times afterwards, at some point you cease to be the very newest person in town. So mm-hmm. let's say I've been here a couple of years, 1990, 91, right in there somewhere. I began to think I was an old timer, mm-hmm. um, and which, you know, you, you're certainly not. But um, so I would hear people who were moving here who were kind of in my age group. They would say, oh, man, this is so clicky. This community is really very clickish. I just can't find my place. Mm-hmm. And that used to really gall me. And and because I never felt that. I never saw it being clicky. Now, granted, I had a my, when you're in the insurance business, you've got to figure way figure out a way to get in front of people. Sure. And leveraging some other relationships is always the best way to do that. If I called you, I'll use you as an example. If I had called you up one day and I said, uh, Jason, Tony Freeman has said that you are somebody I should be talking to. Um, and I'd just like to come by and meet you. I'm, I'm at Trafton a lot, uh, because Tony and Steve and Rick are clients of mine. And, you know, Tony just mentioned your name. I'd like to meet you. You would probably say yes to that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found people here. Always saying yes and always being generous with telling me some other people I should talk to. Now I always ask them. Who else? Who yeah. else fits who into this? Yeah. Who is like you? And so, so when people would say to me, "You just can't get involved here. There's nothing to do," I would just come unleashed. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, "Yes, there is. You're not trying. Hard You're enough. not trying hard enough." Or let me. A lot of times, it's let me help you today. When I identify, and I've had this opportunity uh, by working around college students. You know, they're starting their careers, and I hear about that, and we sit down and have a cup of coffee or whatever, and they're uh, they're in any sort of insurance, stock brokering, uh, real estate, mm-hmm. whatever, that needs connection, I want to set them up. I find myself wanting to do that because I know what it was like to start mm-hmm. and not know. I, when I came here, I didn't know anyone, and I had a referral from a guy that we coached our our son's soccer team together, and his bro- former brother-in-law at that time was the marketing director at Texas Cattle Feeders. Okay, and he just said, "When you get there, call call Don Clift, uh, and tell him that I said for you to call him." And I did that on the very first day in the office on January the second <laughs> of nineteen eighty nine, and. Don Cliff said, what are you doing for lunch today? And I thought, uh, I hope I'm not paying for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we went to lunch, and he said, and this will date this conversation, he said, let me uh, let me go through my Rolodex, mm-hmm. and I will send you some names. And I thought, I'll never hear from this guy again. I got about 10 names from him yeah. within two or three that days. That feels like a very Amarillo sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, that is how I find this community. Why, who would want to leave that? Yeah. Uh, and when I hear people say, there's nothing to do here, my response is, I can't figure out how to have enough money to do everything there is to do, mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot to do. This episode is supported by Union Hall Workspace, which offers a more productive and professional working experience than your local coffee shop. This unique co-working space is right in the middle of Amarillo, and it's used by remote workers and small business owners. It even offers offices for rent with flexible memberships so you can choose where, when, and how you work. I mean, people are working remotely these days. Not everybody wants to work in a house or in their home setting or at a kitchen table. If that's you, Union Hall is a great option. Union Hall, your work, your way. To learn more, visit unionhalltx.com. That's unionhalltx.com. Okay, I'm back with Joe Bill Sherrod of Amarillo College. Joe Bill, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. 
Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. I know you're familiar with it. Yep. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes 266 buttons, including buttons made of bone, glass, rubber, and iron that were recovered at the trading post site of the Second Battle of Adobe Walls in 1874. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they were being sold at the trading post, if they were buttons worn by you know some of the army guys yeah. who are there yeah. or whatever yeah. or the both. buffalo hunters yeah. um interesting but uh, you can learn more and see those buttons at panhandleplains.org okay so the first question is what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people we don't like to be alone all right and uh and we probably break all the rules in order to not be alone okay <laughs> that but, makes sense but that i mean i say that kind of jokingly although there's some truth in it but the, I, I think the resiliency and the and the the push through, uh, I think a lot of a lot of places across the country just stopped, mm-hmm. and we slowed down, but we didn't stop completely. Yeah, and I think and, that's that, that's something that I guess we're becoming increasingly aware mm-hmm. was maybe a, a really good thing about living here mm-hmm. is you know, we had to deal with obviously a, a lot of sickness and stuff, but like. Mm-hmm. We haven't had the restrictions, the shutdowns, even the economic impact that a yeah. lot of places have. Yeah. Uh, so agree. Maybe agree. it's a it's a delicate balance yeah. of uh, of living and and trying and to I, do things. You know, safely. I think it. I, this shouldn't go without saying that that our community responds with generosity, mm-hmm. with support, uh, with taking care of your neighbor in times like that, and. That was certainly probably the biggest time in in the history of the city yeah. that the city had to come together and do that, and they did. Well, uh, not was, waiting for the the government to take care of us. It was yeah. the same kind of yes. story. Let's yes. do it ourselves. Yes. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I think that there are a lot of things in life that we have that uh, that we really can't get enough of, and um, so um, I think it's always better to have more. And if you need to call it down, uh, you can do that. That okay. is that is a very long way of me saying I don't know what you don't the, know the, the answer, answer to that. But is. Having too much of something is probably <laughs> yeah. okay, right? Yeah. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? I wish there were a greater number of our population who had a bigger vision for the region. Hmm. We have some really we have some folks in our community who I think have really big visions. Uh, I work with one of them, and and maybe. Maybe organizations don't do well if there are too many big visions. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, there are days that I, I would ju- I just wish that everybody could think or many more people could think like this because then it begins to really move the needle on something. Um, so I would say a bigger vision for itself, a healthier understanding of, of our own sense of who we are. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? That it's uh, a little secret, and right. there are many, many good things going on here, and that the people are super friendly. And if you think you know friendly, you don't know friendly until you've come here. Hmm. And does that usually uh, play out and to, turns out to be true for those guests who do sure, come here? Sure, they, yeah. They're always oh, yeah. pleasantly surprised oh, by yeah. the friendliness. I think everybody is surprised. And and. Not everyone's in love with what what you and I would call the beauty of the area, mm-hmm. uh, but some people I'm I'm always surprised at the end of the day if they've seen a sunset they begin to see the beauty. Okay, what's your favorite street in Amarillo? Uh, that's tricky. I don't know. I I I love Julian Boulevard, but I'm going to say my favorite street is probably Polk Street because right. because I've seen this drastic revival over the last thirty years, and it just makes me happy to be on Polk Street. All right, that totally makes sense. Yeah. What's your favorite local restaurant? OHMS. Okay, that's a uh, it's a restaurant that has been successful and pretty healthy downtown for a long time, yeah. even when there were very few other restaurants downtown. Well, I'll tell you why I would say it's my favorite restaurant. When I first came here in January of 1989, I had come from a city like Tulsa Mm -hmm. that had uh, a lot of places to go eat and that weren't chains. And when I got here, it was like everything's a chain. And I hadn't been here very long, and somebody told me about this little place. And that's back when John Early 
actually was the owner. He was the guy from England. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember going in there. Of course, that was just lunch, you know, back then. And uh, there were no dinners. Right. But I thought the food was incredible. And so I went there a lot just because it reminded me of Tulsa. And uh, and I wanted it to make, I wanted it to do well. And here all these years later, it, it, it's not only done well and survived, it's like off the charts. Yeah, it is. When was the last time you wore cowboy boots? I'm digging out a really old question for you, but that, that's that's an old one from early in the podcast. Interestingly enough, I grew up on a ranch. Okay. Um, but um, I have pretty much left those cowboy boots back in the country. All right. But they're not necessary on the campus of AC. No, but about uh, well, maybe four years ago, probably four years ago, I had to go to the um, Spicer Grip thing in Hereford mm-hmm. as uh, as a representative of WT Ag. And I don't know why I had it in my head that I had to go buy a pair of boots to do that because I just didn't want to show up where there were going to be a bunch of cowboys. Right, and, and be the green And guy. I had a suit on. <laughs> um, so I went and bought a pair of boots. That's the I think I wore them one time after that, and they looked really good in my closet. All right. Yeah. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Oh, man, I... I was trying to think about that. I can't remember the last time I went there, but it's probably been 20 years. Hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a long time. Yeah. To go. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a place I would take somebody. It's not, it's not a place uh, for locals necessarily. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of not its, yeah. its focus, but okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, I've talked a lot about Amarillo College, uh, and that is that is definitely my 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 um, organization to support for today uh, because of the, the many things that are going on there. Amarillo College truly is a place for everybody. There is something there for every every person. First gen, second gen, multi-gen, uh, have money, don't have money. Mm-hmm. We have programs that accommodate, uh, I think, every kind of student. I also really believe this vision that Russell has, which is we. Our, it is our calling to be transformative of the workforce in this area. And uh, we're doing that. We're in the midst of a... Uh, $45 million uh, comprehensive campaign, and uh, we're 18 months in, and I'm very excited about the results of that. We'll go public with the campaign in uh, in the upcoming fall. Okay. So, yeah. Looking forward to that then. Yeah, me too. Well, Joe Bill Sherrod, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate I've it. I've enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Joe Bill for the interview. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. And thanks to our sponsors, Union Hall Workspace, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review that helps other people find the show. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Camarillo's executive producers include Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 240. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.